All right, awesome. With that said, let's grab our Bibles if we have them. Uh, We're going to be in two passages today. Uh, Our psalm for the day is Psalm 51, and then we're also going to spend a few minutes in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So just go to both of those passages, Psalm 51, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Last weekend, I was getting ready to take my daughters to the pool one afternoon, and so we were doing what you do before you go to the pool, just lathering everybody up in sunscreen. And, And so I started digging sunscreen out of our beach bag and came to realize that we were almost out of the sunscreen that my wife and I use. And so uh, I managed to find three almost empty bottles, and I pulled them out, set them on our bathroom counter, and as I was getting like what little bit I could out of each of the bottles for myself, personally, my six-year-old daughter Rowan comes in, and I immediately said to her, don't touch the sunscreen. You see, this little girl is the type who loves to get into everything. And so I knew if she touches it, she will be tempted to open it. And if she opens it, she's probably going to spill it. And I can't afford to waste any. So don't touch the sunscreen. Now, I got to be honest. I was hoping my daughter's response in this moment would have been, uh, yes, daddy, I love you, daddy. I take so much joy and delight in doing what you asked me to do, daddy. But that is not what happened. Guess what my daughter did? Yeah, she grabbed a bottle of the sunscreen and proceeded to open it, and then she squeezed it, and the little bit of sunscreen that was left in that bottle exploded everywhere. Help me, Jesus, was all I could come up with in that moment. Like, I need you now. I'm about to lose my mind on this girl that I love so much. Now, look, I would love to tell you today that behaving that way is a six-year-old problem, but it's not. Right? The truth is that behaving in that way is a human problem. And I know it's a human problem because even at 36, I am still guilty at times of doing the wrong thing while knowing the right thing. And if you're being honest today, you're guilty of the same thing too, aren't you? Yeah, we all have moments in which we know exactly what we need to do, yet for some reason we do the opposite. And in many cases, we suffer for it. Right, that is, our sinful decisions, they bring about certain consequences in our lives that impact our lives and in some cases, even the lives of other people in very, very detrimental ways. That's the bad news. The really good news and the hopeful news is this, that even when we sin and suffer, God still offers grace. Amen? And look, the way that you experience that grace, don't miss this, it's through confession. That's the big truth that we see reflected in our psalm for today. You see, Psalm 51 is what's known as a penitential psalm. Penitential psalms are psalms of confession, psalms in which the writer acknowledges his sin before God, but also reminds himself, along with the entire nation of Israel, of the grace and mercy of God. There are seven of these types of psalms throughout the book, and six of the seven were written by King David. Psalm 51 tends to be the most well-known due to its backstory, and that backstory is captured for us in the title of the psalm. If your Bibles are open in your laps, just look down at the text with me and you'll see it here. Uh, I'd always encourage you to bring your Bible to church so you can see stuff like this. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a free one. Just stop by our connection desk on the way out and ask for one. But here's what the title says. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went with him or went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this title lets us know that David recorded this confession after a confrontation. Okay, he, the king of Israel at the time, was engaged in a sinful relationship with a woman named Bathsheba, and so God sent to him a prophet named Nathan to confront him. 
in a few moments. We're going to read about that confrontation. But before we do, I want to share the details of what led up to it. And if you have never read this story, it is heartbreaking, it is despicable, it is wicked, but as we're going to see before we leave today, there's a lot of hope that comes from it, all right? So here's the story. If you go back one chapter to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you find that the army of Israel was away at war. They were battling a people known as the Ammonites. You also find that King David, the king of Israel, was at home in the city of Jerusalem in his palace, which was really strange. Because his duty as king required him to be on the battlefield with his men. And so get this, the story of David's sin, it begins with David not being where he's supposed to be. And my friends, can I just tell you today, that is often how sin begins. With you and I not being where we're supposed to be. I was supposed to be at work, wasn't there. Uh, Teenagers, I was supposed to be at my friend's house, I wasn't there. I was supposed to be on that business trip, wasn't there. Was supposed to be in the bed with my spouse because it was midnight and I wasn't there. There's so much I could say on this if I only had more time. Uh, Because I don't have much time, I just want to say this one thing briefly. Part of avoiding sin is as simple as you being where you're supposed to be, right? It's a whole lot easier to do the right thing when you're in the right place with the right people at the right time. David missed that. He's not where he's supposed to be. And so late one afternoon, he decides to take a walk on the roof of his palace. And as he looks out across the way, he sees on another roof this very beautiful, very naked woman. Yet instead of diverting his eyes and looking away, he decides, I'm going to send some of my servants to find out who she is. And, and so they bring word back and they tell David, that's Bathsheba. She is the wife of one of the soldiers in your army. But not just any soldier, David, one of your top soldiers You see, there was a group of 37 soldiers in David's army known as David's mighty men. They were basically the Navy SEALs of their day. I mean, they were friends with David. He was friends with them. They knew each other personally. And so these messengers tell him Bathsheba's husband is Uriah, one of those guys. And this is where we see the power of lust on full display. Uh, David shows no regard for Bathsheba, no regard for her husband, who is also his friend, He simply decides, I'm the king, and I can do what I want to do. And so he sends some of his messengers to get Bathsheba so that he can sleep with her. And when you keep reading the story, you find that apparently they forgot to use any type of protection because a short time later, Bathsheba is running back to David with the clear blue pregnancy test in her hand, letting him know, I am pregnant. Now, this is a massive problem, right? I mean, David just slept with a married woman whose husband is away at war. And so anybody with a brain or a calculator is going to be able to do the math and figure out she did not get pregnant by the man she is married to. Well, David knows this, and so he does what men do best when things go awry. He snaps into fix-it mode. I have to fix this. I have to fix this. I got to figure out a way to fix this. And, And so he devises this plan. He decides, I'm going to call Uriah back home from the battlefield. I mean, what soldier who's been away at war doesn't want to come home and get some rest and sleep with his wife, right? And so David's thinking, if I send him home, he'll sleep with Bathsheba. Everyone will naturally assume he got her pregnant and I'll be off the hook. Well, the problem was the plan didn't work. He called Uriah home, but night one, instead of going home, Uriah sleeps on David's porch. Well, David finds him the next day and he basically asks, bro, why did you do this? Like, why didn't you go home and sleep with your wife? And In this moment, Uriah proved that he was a better man than David. He basically said to him, out of honor and respect for you, my king, 
out of loyalty for my fellow soldiers who are still on the battlefield, sleeping in the fields. I cannot go home and sleep with my wife. Well, obviously, this leaves David scratching his head, right? Like, man, i got to come up with a better plan. And, and so he goes next level. He decides to invite Uriah into his home for a meal. And he gets the brother drunk, like on purpose. I mean, drunk people aren't the best at using their brains, amen? And so David's probably thinking, if I get him drunk enough, he'll let his guard down. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. But again, for the second night in a row, Uriah crashes on David's porch. Like, I don't know if he was too drunk or not drunk enough. He just landed there. And so David realizes quickly, I I imagine he went into panic mode. He's having somewhat of an, an anxiety attack here. He's realizing this is not working. People are going to find me out. And so he comes up with this grand finale. He decides, I'll send Uriah back to the battlefield. But before he does so, he places a letter in his hand And this letter is addressed to a man named Joab, who was the commander of Israel's army at the time. And the letter basically said this, Joab, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines of the battlefield where the fighting is the fiercest, and then I want you to draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. How wicked is this? David decides, since he can't get this man to sleep with his own wife to cover up his sin He'll just have the guy killed. And when you keep reading the story, that's exactly what happens. Joab follows through on David's plan, puts Uriah in the front lines of battle, and he's struck down and he dies. And then what's almost more gut-wrenching than that is David tries to act like he's this honorable man on the back end of this and brings Bathsheba into his house and takes her as his wife. 2 Samuel chapter 11 closes with this powerful statement. This thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Read this with me. Starting in verse 1, here's what it says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and, and he told him the following parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to it. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Do you see what's going on here? Rich man takes from the poor man to meet his own selfish needs and desires. And so Nathan goes on, or the Bible goes on and says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And this is where Nathan drops the bomb on David. And he says, David, you're the man. You're the man I'm talking about. This is what you have done. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, before we talk about David's response to that confrontation, let me say this. 
We all need a friend like Nathan. Every single one of us in the room. A friend who cares enough and a friend who is courageous enough to confront us about our sin. You see, what strikes me about Nathan is this. He risked his very life to confront David. I mean, think about it. David was who? He was the, he was the king. You didn't confront the king. Why? Because the king could have your head on a platter. He could take you out at any time for any reason. But I love the fact that Nathan didn't care. You see, he loved God enough and he loved David enough to call David out on his sin. You need a friend like that. A friend who doesn't encourage you in your sin, but one who calls you out of it. And when that friend confronts you about whatever it is that's going on in your life, you have to make a decision about your response. And it's the same decision David had to make. As I see it, you have four options, all right? There may be more than this, but this is all I came up with when I was writing this message. Number one, you can cover it. You can cover it. Or in other words, you can just keep denying that you did anything wrong. David could have gone this route. You see, almost a year had passed between him doing what he did and Nathan confronting him. Almost a year passes between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. So David could have just said to himself in this moment, you know, I've gotten away with it for this long. Might as well keep covering it up. Nathan, you've got it all wrong, buddy. I'm not the man you think I am. I didn't do what you're saying I did. I mean, give me a break. I brought this poor widow into my house. I'm taking care of her. I'm taking care of her kid, right? Again, you can do that when it comes to your own sin, but there are a couple of things you have to remember. Number one, while you might be successful in hiding your sin from a lot of people, you can never hide your sin from the Lord, right? He knows, and so you might as well come clean. The second thing to keep in mind is this. As long as you keep covering your sin, you'll be caught in it. As long as you keep covering it, you'll be caught in it. You see, the person who lives in hiding lives in bondage. Confession is the way to freedom. James, how do I break free from my sin today? You bring it into the light. The person who keeps their sin in the darkness lives in the darkness. Confession is the way out of the darkness. Therefore, the person who lives in hiding never experiences freedom. You can cover it. Number two, you can condone it. Uh, you, You can, in other words, excuse it, justify it. Again, David could have done this. He could have said to Nathan in this moment, you know what, buddy, Uh, you just don't understand. A year ago, I was in a really dark place in my life. I was feeling very, very lonely. And I mean, come on, bro, you have seen Bathsheba. She is super hot and she was very naked. Any guy in my position would have done the same thing. Give me a break. It just happened. Could have done that. I just want to remind us today in light of that, and and this is key, and if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Sin never just happens, ever. Like, we are always willful participants in the sinful decisions that we make. The devil can't make you do anything. You choose to do what you do, which means there is never a good excuse for sin. Number three, you can correct it. Or I probably need to say you can attempt to correct it. Right, you can get hard to work attempting to make right what you've done wrong. This would have been like David saying to Nathan in this moment, you know what, buddy, you're right, I blew it, messed up royally, my sin is so great, so here's what I'm going to do. From this point forward, I'm going to work really hard to be a better person. I'm going to go to the temple every day, I'm going to give more to the Lord than I've ever given, I'm going to be kind to people, I'll be the most humble king Israel has ever known. Like, I'm going to, through my good behavior, show God how bad I feel for what I've done. 
And I'm also going to prove to him that I deserve his love and his forgiveness. I'm going to come back and say more on this in just a moment, so don't lose this thought. But number four, you can just confess it. You can just come clean and be open and honest about what you've done. This ultimately is what David did. He stopped hiding his sin after a year had passed. He didn't make any excuses for it. He didn't attempt to correct it in any way. He simply confessed it, both to Nathan, but most importantly to God. And in Psalm chapter 51, this is where we find David's confession. Let's read this together, starting in verse 1. And while we read, just pay attention to not only the heartbreak that you hear in these verses, but also the hope. There's a lot of hope in Psalm 51. I'll show you as we work through it. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from, uh, from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, get this, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, what I want to do is break this confession down into four parts. And I want to break it down to help you see it more clearly. Because the reality is, David's confession serves as a beautiful example of what our confession should sound like when confronted with our sin. All right, so here we go. If you're taking notes, some stuff to write down. <clears throat> Number one, David confesses the character of God. He confesses the character of God. So before even acknowledging his sin, he acknowledges what is true about God himself. And then he asks God in verses one and two, I love this, to act in accordance with his character. God, because you are merciful, would you blot out or erase all my transgressions? God, because you are gracious, would you wash me of all my iniquities? God, because you're loving and compassionate, would you purify me or cleanse me from all of my sin? Look, this part of David's confession reminds us, and, and again, if you're taking notes, write some version of this down, but this part of his confession reminds us that when we come to him confessing sin, we don't come on the basis of our behavior, we come on the basis of his character. Let me just say that one more time because I really need you to get this. When we come to God confessing sin, we don't come on the basis of our behavior. We come on the basis of his character. And let me illustrate what I mean, all right? I really want to show you, if I can, how we get this wrong a lot of times. And this goes back to what I said a moment ago about correcting sin. 
When I was a teenager, here's how my Christian life often went. Uh, I would sin, and it seemed that in those days I did that a lot. Like I was really bad at that following Jesus thing back then. And parents in the room, if you have teenagers that are bad at it, just pray for them and stay hopeful. All right, it turned out okay for me, but don't lose hope. But back then, just sin would mess up and start to feel really guilty, really ashamed. Yet instead of going to God and simply confessing my sin, here's what I would do. Uh, I would get hard to work. I'd take at least a couple weeks, and I would try really hard to do better. In church, every time the doors were open, we were singing, right? I was singing top of my lungs, hands raised, spending a little bit more time in my Bible, helping little old ladies across the street. Like I had just resolved, I, I can be better than this. And so after a couple weeks of doing really well, I would go back to God and I would say something like this. Okay, God, I know that you know that a couple weeks ago I really blew it. But I don't know if you've noticed since that time I've been killing it. I mean, God, look at my, my good behavior. I've been doing really well. And so I am here on the basis of that behavior to ask you if you'd forgive me for that thing I did. Why was this my ploy? Because for a lot of years, I missed what was true about the character of God. You see, I was that kid who thought God was always angry. God was always displeased, always disapproving, always expecting more. And so anytime I fell into sin, I didn't feel like I could just confess it. I felt that I needed to spend time correcting it. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like I would imagine that some of you are guilty of this very thing as well. You fall into sin and, and you don't feel like I can just confess it. No, you feel like I need to work hard and, and correct it. Why? Because you think God is someone that he's not. Instead of seeing him as gracious, merciful, always ready and willing to forgive, you see him like I used to see him. As this angry being just waiting in the wings to take you out for whatever you do wrong, Right? And so I just want to say to you, if that's you today, your view of God has to change. Because until you see God for who he is, you will never come to God just as you are. And my friends, that is the invitation of Christianity, that you and I would come to God just as we are. Where do we see the proof of that invitation? In Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. You see, 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe gave up his one and only son on our behalf to extend to us an open, standing invitation to come to him with all of our sin, no strings attached, to receive the grace and the healing and the forgiveness that we need. But if you're going to take God up on that invitation, not just like for the first time when you accept Jesus, but over and over and over again throughout your Christian life, you have to first see God for who he is. And so I would say, when you come to confess, always start here. Start with who God is. Number two, David confesses the seriousness of sin. He confesses the seriousness of sin. We see this in verses three through six. And, and he acknowledges a couple things about sin here that we cannot miss Number one, he acknowledges sin's origin, its origin. You see him doing this in verse five when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying there, my mom did something really sinful to conceive me. <laughs> He's simply saying, uh, my sin began in the womb. Like I, I've been a sinner since before birth. I was born into this world with a sinful nature. This is the doctrine of Christianity known as original sin. Uh, it's a doctrine that teaches that you and I, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Are you tracking with me? 
that we are born into the world as sinful people, therefore we sin. And I've told you this before, but if you ever doubt that doctrine, just have some kids, man. Like, seriously, like get married, then have some kids. Uh, but parents in the room, you know this about your own kids. You never had to teach them how to sin, did you? No, they figured that out on their own real quick. Why? Because they're a bunch of filthy little sinners. That's why. Like, we're all born that way. That's where sin starts. Number two, number two, David acknowledges sin's essence. Sin's essence. We see him doing this in verse four. And this is a really interesting statement. I would imagine a moment ago when we read it, some of you disagreed with it. He says to God against you and you only have I sinned. Some of you are thinking even right now, that's wrong. Nope. There were two other people named Uriah and Bathsheba that David also sinned against. And you're right. He did. That's not David's way of dismissing that. This is simply David's way of acknowledging that all sin, including sin committed against other people, is ultimately sin committed against God. I want you to think about this with me, okay? Uh, What gives us the right to sit here today and to judge David for what he did? This is a really important question, isn't it? Especially in the culture in which we are living today that says all truth is relative, all truth is subject. The truth is whatever you want it to be. Well, if that's true, how can we sit here today and give this brother a hard time for adultery and murder? What gives us that right? Well, the only thing that gives us that right are the standards set forth by God concerning adultery and murder. You see, mankind didn't decide that those things were wrong. God did. And so for David to say to God through his actions, I don't care what you've said about sleeping with people I'm not married to. And I do not care what you've said about killing someone who you created in your image. God, I will do what I want to do. What did David do? In sinning against them, he sinned against, against God. Listen, it is so critical that you and I see sin in this way. Because far too often, I, I think we're guilty of minimizing our sin. Like we just see sin as like bad stuff we do. Oh, oh it's just bad things. No, it's way more than that. You see, sin is when you and I, as created beings, say to creator God, even though this world and everything in it belongs to you, and even though you have clearly spoken about how life should work, I will live my life however I want to live my life. Listen, my friends, that is a serious thing because the Bible teaches that that rebellious attitude toward God always results in the judgment of God. He recognizes that in the psalm. Number three, David confesses his need for renewal. In verses 7 and 12, we basically see him repeating what he asked for in verses 1 and 2. He just does it backwards here. Uh, David uh, asked God if he would forgive him, restore him, cleanse him, purify him, blot out all of his transgressions and iniquities. But then he also asked God to take away the pain that sin has inflicted upon his life. You see him asking for this when, you say, when he says to God, uh, God, would you let all the bones that you have broken rejoice? How many of you know that like sin that goes undealt with in your life can inflict a lot of pain into your life, right? And so David's asking, God, would you just remove that from me? But he also asks God to give him some things. Number one, he asks God to give him a clean heart. You see, I love the fact that David understands that his sin problem is not simply a behavior problem, it's a heart problem. And you need to know that the same is true for your sin problem. 
Your sin problem is not simply a behavior problem. There's a problem with your heart going on. This is why behavior modification never works, by the way. Like some of y'all really think that if you work hard enough, you can change your behavior and make yourself into the person God created you to be. If I work hard enough, I can just manage my sin to death. No, you can't. Give it up. Stop trying. What you need is for something in your heart to change. You want your behavior to change? Your heart has to change. But you can't change your heart. What you need is to open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit of God, and you need to invite him to come in and to change your heart. And after he does that, guess what? Your behavior follows suit. So God, give me a clean heart. Um, Next, he asks God to give him a right spirit, a spirit that is unwavering in his commitment to the Lord. He asks God for his presence and and for the presence of the Holy Spirit. He, He even says to God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This is what happened to the king before David, King Saul. Because of his sin, God pulled his spirit off of that king. And David is saying to God, I don't want that to be my story. Like, don't take him from me. And then finally he prays and he asks God for joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. For all of us in the room today who know Jesus Christ, like there's been a moment in your life where you have confessed your sin to the Lord, confessed your need for a savior, and you've put your faith in Jesus as the savior that you need. I want you to do me a favor. Right now in this moment, I want you to think back to that moment when you made that decision. That moment when you finally realized, oh my gosh, the God of the universe loves me and he sent his son to save me and I can have new life now and eternal life with him later. I want you to think about the moment that you made that decision. Do you remember the joy you experienced in that moment? Do you remember the joy that you experienced in even the days and weeks to come? Here's my question. Do you still possess that joy Is that same joy still in you today? Or have you lost it? If you were that person who would be honest enough to say, I have lost it, I would assume that what's true of you is this, that maybe just maybe sin has crept into your life somewhere along the way and snuffed out that joy. Can I give you the good news? God wants to give you your joy back. And the only thing you need to do to experience that joy is go to God and confess your sin and ask him to restore it to you. And God is so gracious that he will freely give you that thing you've lost. How beautiful is this? So David goes on fourthly and he recognizes and confesses his desire to be used. His desire to be used. I love how bold this part of the confession is. David says to God, God, if you do this stuff for me, transgressors and sinners will know who you are. God, you you do the very things I'm asking for. People who are far from you, I will bring them back to you. God, if you deliver me and you restore me and you heal me and you forgive me, your praise will be on my lips. I will sing of your righteousness. God, I'm not just going to bring you a bunch of lame sacrifices. I'm going to bring you everything that I have. Got a broken and contrite heart is what I'm going to lay down and sacrifice before you. Because, God, I know that's what you want. You don't want my behavior if you don't have my heart. Can I just tell you those desires that David expresses here? These are the desires of the man and woman who understand the depths of God's grace given to them in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the person who knows that God loves me and God accepts me and it has nothing to do with me. It's not dependent on what I do or don't do, but dependent on what Jesus Christ has done for me. The person who understands that, that even though my sin is great, the grace of God is greater. This is what Paul teaches in Romans, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The person who understands that the greatest desire of their life is this. I just want to be used by God. That's all I want. I want to praise him and I want to honor him and I want to make much of him. I I want to live my life in such a way that people who are far from him find their way back to him. And I just wonder today, are, are those desires your desires? Like are you in the house as that person who is so enamored, so captivated by the amazing grace of God that we sang about earlier, that the greatest desire of your life is, God, just take hold of me and use me for your glory and the good of the world around me. Again, I I would say to you, if you're that person who's here and you're going, that's not my greatest desire, um, I would imagine that sin, again, somewhere along the way, has crept in and killed those desires. The only way, don't miss this, look, the only way for those desires to be stirred back up in your life again is by you experiencing the grace of God yet again. And how do you experience the grace of God? Through confession. Through confession. And so as we close, let me just ask the question and then we'll pray. Is there anything in your life you need to confess today? To God, maybe even to another person? Is there sin in your life that you're hiding? Sin that you're excusing? Uh, sin that you're working really hard to correct and get right? If so, again, the simple invitation today is this. Would you come to God and confess that sin, not on the basis of your behavior, but on the basis of his gracious character? If you do that, here's the beautiful promise. First John 1, 9. You confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The promise from Jesus in Matthew 5, 4 is this. The person who confesses and mourns over their sin will be comforted personally by the God of the universe. You see, I can't promise you today that if you confess all your sins, that all the consequences of your sin will magically fade away. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you confess, but you're still stuck with sin scars. That was absolutely true in David's life. You keep reading this story. The dude suffered a lot because of what he did. But God forgave him, and look, God still used him. And I'm a firm believer that if God can forgive and use a guy like that, he can forgive and use people like us. Amen? So the consequences might not go away, but look, you confess to God, cleansing and comfort will be yours. And so if you need to confess today, I want to invite you to do it now. Can we just all across the room bow our heads, close our eyes? And Christian in the room, I just want to encourage you and and challenge you in this moment, if there is something in your life you need to confess, why don't you just go ahead and start doing it? Just right now in this moment. If you need to take a knee in the presence of the Lord, man, feel free to bow where you are. If you need to come to the front of this room and, and just use it as an altar before the Lord, you can do that. Just If I'm you, I'm not worried about what anybody else in this room is thinking about me right now. I just want to get myself right with the Lord. And so whatever you need to do, you do it. As you're praying, I want to speak to those of you in the room who walked in today who aren't Christians. Like if you're here in the house and there's never been a moment in your life where you have confessed your sin to God for the first time 
and confess your need for a Savior and put your faith in Jesus Christ as that Savior that you need. Again, I hope more than anything today you have seen that God loves you greatly. God desires to give you grace. He wants to be in a relationship with you, a relationship that changes everything now and gives you the hope of eternity later. And so if you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ today, why don't you just say something in prayer right now to God like this? Just tell him, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin is keeping me from you. But God, I also confess that Jesus is the Savior you sent to forgive people like me. And I put my faith in him today as Savior and Lord. I believe he died to pay for all my sins, that he rose from the dead to give me new and eternal life with you. And so God, in this moment, would you take hold of my life and forgive me of all my sins and make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to a relationship with you. As with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I wanna ask you, if you just prayed that with me, Would you acknowledge the fact that you made that decision right now by just lifting a hand wherever you are? That's me, James. Just confess my need. Just keep it up for a moment, if you will. Put my faith in Jesus. Just throw it up real high. Our prayer team's gonna come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Anybody else, James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today for the first time. as we're still in this moment our our band they're going to come back and just close us out with just a portion of a song that we sang earlier and as they do that keep praying keep pressing in if there's something that you still need to confess I would say do it let's just use this time to allow God to work in our lives in ways that only he can God we thank you for your grace God would you pour it out on the people in this room right now God we need you we love you and we pray it in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Let's respond.